Support for this program is provided by Chevron. This is Politico Energy. I'm Annie Snyder. Space, the final frontier. When you think of space, you probably think of it as the place where rocket ships go, where the moon is, where Star Trek took place. What you probably don't think about is climate change. But space technology, like satellites, has become an increasingly important tool for scientists and policymakers who want to get a handle on how the planet is changing, where emissions are coming from, and how to respond to the disasters that follow. Today, Politico's Jonathan Custodio explains the potential of that space technology and its limitations. It's Monday, November 8th. Jonathan, in your recent story on the role of satellites in predicting and countering climate change, you described the technology as a game changer. What are satellites being used for today? So satellites break down into several categories. One of them is Earth observation, and they've seen a boon in the commercial satellite industry over the last 10 years. And a big data point is around 2011, uh, there were 10 satellites being used for Earth observation. And by the last measure taken in 2020, that number has skyrocketed to 338. So what folds under Earth observation could be measuring sea surface temperatures, landmass, ice sheets, and that folds into different areas like disaster response or emissions tracking. It's interesting. Explain more about the emissions tracking side of it. A big area in emissions tracking is uh, Carbon Mapper, which was formed between Planet, a major commercial satellite Earth observation company, uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, the state of California, and other California nonprofits. And what it does is it can identify sort of the biggest emitters of gases like methane and carbon dioxide to specific oil refineries or other places of that nature and sort of put a bigger scope on places like that. So you say that the Biden administration has prioritized support for space technologies. In what way? The Biden administration proposed a 12.5% increase to NASA's Earth Science Division, which had been $2 billion last fiscal year, now to $2.25 billion this fiscal year. That's a noteworthy jump. And in addition, they proposed more money for NOAA's uh, satellite division, jumping that up to a pretty significant amount compared to last year. So in addition, NASA's Earth System Observatory, which is specifically geared for Earth observation is something that's been launched officially this year in May and in the process of launching several different missions over the next decade. So we're still waiting to hear what happens in Congress as far as appropriating those budgets completely. But those were probably a couple of the signals. So can you maybe just like step back and just paint us a picture of what satellites are used for? Like give us the full spectrum here of the, the types of information that maybe we sort of take for granted now, or that we, maybe the opposite, maybe that we would have no idea that we're getting from satellites. The first thing is just, is simply like observing and then taking that data and trying to use it in effective ways. A way that I learned that was really interesting was how satellites play a role in in deforestation. There was one story that a, a planet representative had told me that they worked in partnership with Brazil's Federal Police's Environmental Crimes Unit, which is their version of the FBI, they were basically looking at roads being paved illegally. Through their satellite images, they were able to recognize that illegal deforestation was happening. 
the Brazilian federal police was then able to send agents over to stop it in real time. And also forest fires, which are becoming increasingly dangerous and increasingly more powerful and more devastating. Satellites have been really good at being able to predict forest fires ahead of time and also being able to analyze burn scars, uh, which burn scars, if you know, scarred deeply enough, can eventually lead to landslides if precipitation follows it. Sounds like there are still some areas where we lack a full picture from satellites, though, right? Where are the big data gaps? One thing about the satellite data is that if it's not paired with the proper infrastructure, it's not going to be as much of a game changer as people would like it to be. For example, parts of West Africa, the weather stations that are available and the people on the ground to apply that data from weather stations and satellites isn't very proliferate. You know, it's not in huge supplies compared to the global north or the U.S., uh, for example. So they'll have a harder time predicting when major floods are going to happen or predicting the power of a hurricane in a very sufficient time frame, which can obviously have real effects to people on the ground if you're not able to warn people in time or properly prepare them for those major disasters. Additionally, satellites sort of lag in not being to measure ocean depths, which is obviously a big part of climate analysis since the ocean makes up such a large percentage of our world. And satellites can, at the moment, can really only go a few meters deep. And also having the scientists and having the people to look at this data on the ground is important. You still need to have people there. You still need to have people who know what they're doing. And that's not equitable or that's not equally available across continents or across regions. So, of course, satellites have been around for a while, but it sounds like you're saying that they've really proliferated in recent years. So tell us a little bit about the history of how they've been used for Earth observation and how significant this change has been recently. Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, Earth observation kind of goes back as far as NASA's Landsat satellite. And it's sort of this huge school bus who has really big measuring capabilities, but now it has sort of the support of these commercial satellite companies who are launching smaller constellations that are taking high-resolution images on a daily basis. And high-resolution images are so important because they can give a more focused, narrow view on specific areas. It's kind of like being able to look at census data by neighborhood instead of by region or state or nationally. Also, late Friday, the House passed a $550 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill, sending it to President Biden's desk. With 13 House Republicans voting in favor of the bill and six progressive Democrats voting against it, the Senate already approved the bill this summer. The measure pours money into repairing the nation's aging roads, bridges, and water systems, and includes billions in funding to make the country more resilient to climate change through programs like drought mitigation and ecosystem restoration. But... Democrats' even bigger social and climate spending bill was put back on hold on Friday, with a handful of centrist Democrats refusing to vote on that measure until they've seen an independent cost estimate. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi teed up consideration of that bill for as soon as the week of November 15th. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our newsletter at politico.com slash morningenergy. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, I'm Annie Snyder, and we'll see you tomorrow.
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Did you know that Chevron supports the ambitions of the Paris Agreement? In fact, they've even tied their executives' compensation to lowering the carbon emissions intensity of their operations. Because it's only human to help power a brighter future. Learn more at chevron.com slash lowercarbon.